My mom is a very encouraging person in a sense that for my siblings I grew up with, as well as myself, she has these huge expectations. And when I say huge expectations, I'm not saying in a sense of, oh, you should be a doctor if I absolutely hate the biological sciences. I mean more that whatever we're wanting to do, she sees beyond that. More like, you're working this job, you'll be the CEO, or you're in political science, you'll be president. Basically the belief that we will be the best at what we're doing. Of course, growing up, we were pushed by both our parents to have the work ethic to go along with it. But in any case, when I think of the power of positive thinking and the power of faith, I think of my mom. Her saying is, call things that are not as though they were. It comes from the Bible, particularly Romans 4.17. In the King James Version, Romans 4.17 says, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. And here's the thing about that. There's some scientific evidence to suggest that faith-based actions, particularly prayer, does make a difference in the real world. Studies have been conducted that show that prayer is positively correlated to better health outcomes. And I think that the question as to if God is actively healing people or that leaning on one's belief system and communication with the divine reduces stress and anxiety that can otherwise harm us health-wise, that's a different conversation. As a Christian, I personally believe that it could be a bit of column A and column B, but either way, whether you're a religious person or not, there's something to be said for the power of faith. Faith can be used for good things, Faith was instrumental in the movement for civil rights for Black Americans. And it's made up the character of a number of profiles encouraged throughout history. But sometimes, a lot of times, such faith can be used for evil. What we have faith in is just as important, even more so in some cases, than simply having faith at all. The truth also matters. It probably wouldn't be a surprise to know that my favorite Bible verse is John 4.24. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. While the power of positive belief, willing things that are not into existence, can be used to build up and encourage, it can also be used to outright deny reality and lead people towards a dark path. I'll put it this way. It's one thing to receive the positive word that your sick heart is healed and to be prayed over for healing as you're going in for open heart surgery. It's another thing entirely to be told your sick heart is healed and be encouraged not to get heart surgery and to stop taking your doctor prescribed medication. Otherwise, ye of little faith? The big lie, which President Joe Biden talked about prior to becoming president, in response to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol building. The big lie, a phrase taken from Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels. In the case of the United States, of course, we can talk about the lie that Donald Trump won the election and Joe Biden stole it from him and from real Americans, whatever that means. 
And that's what Biden is referring to. But underlying that lie and the other lies told throughout the Trump regime, and even before Trump was even America's problem, is the big lie that is the through line in all this. And here it is. The truth is what we tell you. Trust us. Don't trust them. Don't trust what you see. Believe in us. We can blame right-wing media and lying politicians until the cows come home. But one factor that few in the mainstream are discussing is this. The kind of faith many American Christians possess to distrust their current reality in the name of Jesus is also being weaponized to destroy American democracy. And if we fail to confront that reality, it won't matter that Joe Biden is now our president. Because eventually, likely sooner than later, this great experiment will be over. I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is Pastor Podcast. Welcome to Potstir Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. We recently witnessed the inauguration of the 46th President of the United States, Joe Biden, and Vice President Kamala Harris. Of course, there's a lot of historical firsts. Joe Biden as the oldest president inaugurated. Kamala Harris as Vice President is the first woman elected to national executive office in the United States. She is also the first woman of Black Jamaican and South Asian descent, the first in her role who graduated from a historically Black college or university, or HBCU, Howard University, and the first from a Black Greek organization, Alpha Kappa Alpha, or AKA. The first and second spouses are also notable. Dr. Joe Biden will be the first first lady to continue working outside the home while her spouse is president. Doug Imhoff is the first second gentleman and the first Jewish spouse of a national executive. In a lot of ways, the presidential ticket that has now been inaugurated represents the rich diversity of our country. That representation is not complete to be sure, but it's amazing to see. And President Biden, to his administration's credit, took no time getting straight to work. He is focused on the COVID-19 pandemic, keeping on Dr. Anthony Fauci and unleashing him from Trump-imposed constraints and elevating the science behind the virus to inform and structure what will hopefully be a more comprehensive response to the pandemic. Biden also signed 17 executive orders on his first day, mostly aimed at overturning executive orders and other actions made by the Trump regime. Biden's first day executive orders included rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement and the World Health Organization, a pause on Trump's border wall, the cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline, and an effort to reunite 500-plus children caged in refugee camps with their parents, many of whom have already been deported, a reversal of the anti-Muslim travel ban, extending DACA for undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. as children, 
an extension of a moratorium on evictions, extended student loan deferments, the dissolution of the 1776 Commission designed to oppose the teaching of critical race theory, multiculturalism, and diversity in schools, and much, much more. This new administration is, in a lot of ways, a repudiation of its predecessor, focused on science, public health, climate change, diversity, economic relief, most things the Trump regime was not, and actively opposed. Biden has also been firing a lot of Trump cronies that were installed in a number of government agencies to gum up the works and have refused to hand in their resignations now that a new sheriff is in town. Does this mean that Joe Biden and his administration is beyond criticism? Definitely not. I get that there will be opposition to some of the efforts of the president and congressional Democrats, especially from Trumpists and several federal agencies and the quarter of the judiciary that Trump appointed, not to mention other conservative judges that were in place prior to the Trump regime. At the same time, it's important to remember that Biden is, to his core, aggressively centrist. So, will I criticize him when it's needed? Yep. But Jay, President Biden is doing the best he can. Why criticize and give fuel to the other side? I have maintained consistently that the centrism, really the center-right politics of the third-way Democratic Party of the past 25-plus years, is part of the reason why our country is in the situation it's in, with an increasingly right-wing Republican Party, ineffective opposition, a deeply fractured society, and what is essentially a failed state. The third-way Democratic Party, ushered in by Bill and Hillary Clinton in the early 1990s, left the impoverished working class and middle class with no way to truly advance their economic interests. That iteration of the Democratic Party sought to go as far right as possible in order to win back former Democrats and independents who left the Democratic Party in order to support Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Rather than take the long view and understand that the people that remained Democrats at that point were the majority in this country, they would fight for the next 28 years and counting to gain the votes of those who had no desire to come back and alienate even more Democratic voters. They chose to become a center-right party and give American voters less choice. Progressives today are trying to drag the Democratic Party back so they can support and execute solutions that will truly help the poor, working, and middle class of all stripes. Centrists like Biden need to realize that to remain viable, the party needs to be willing to embrace more progressive solutions that work for the people as a whole, not their wealthy benefactors. Americans need to have choices in each election that actually make sense. I'm still not sure if Joe Biden truly understands the magnitude of the problems we're facing with a society suffering from a pandemic and economic collapse and a GOP beholden to extremists prone to violence. You cannot compromise with bad faith actors, and that is who the Democrats are dealing with on the other side of the aisle.
Look at Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who got up in front of his Senate colleagues and publicly blamed Donald Trump for the attack on the Capitol. Yet while Majority Leader, he refused to reconvene the Senate during the remainder of Trump's term to consider the House's article of impeachment. Then, once Trump is out of office and he's now minority leader, he votes with 44 other Republican senators to not move forward with the Senate removal trial because now Trump is out of office? What? When you are dealing with bad faith actors, there is nothing to cooperate with. You can only govern without them and improve the messaging, letting the American people know that the trolls they elected to Congress are trying to keep them from the relief, safety, and justice they desperately need. Ultimately, what I want to see happen here in the U.S. is that we preserve and expand democracy, stamp out the scourge of white supremacy, create systems of true equal opportunity and equal justice, and build a government that provides the people with tools they need to live happy, healthy lives and give back to their full potential. While I tend to favor Democrats in our two-party system, my personal ideology is left of today's Democratic Party, much closer to that of a social Democrat than a neoliberal. In the United States, the Overton window is skewed very much to the right, which is why I say there's no real left in the U.S., But that doesn't mean we can't work to pull that window leftward over time, which is why it's important to push our leaders to do better and develop and support progressive individuals, organizations, and think tanks working towards that goal. A big challenge that the United States has right now is that 74 million Americans supported Donald Trump in his 2020 re-election bid. 7 million less than the 81 million who opposed him in favor of Joe Biden, but still a large portion of our population. Of those 74 million plus others who supported Trump but didn't vote for whatever reason, a majority of them did not accept the results of the November presidential election once it was announced a few days after it took place. And many don't now. The November 2020 election was as free and fair of an election as we were going to get. That said, we should take into account the extreme gerrymandering, voter purges, the mass closing of driver's license locations in certain areas, while voter ID requirements are in place at the same time, the mass closing of polling stations in some of these same areas, and other types of voter suppression employed primarily by Republicans in order to keep Black Americans and other people of color from voting. And I think that has been somewhat lost in this, in the push to make Americans and people around the world understand that Joe Biden legitimately won the election and Donald Trump lies too much. We've buried the fact that the result was what it was despite the efforts from Republicans to keep certain populations from voting. Much of the reason why down-ballot races did not turn out as well for the Democrats as hoped, especially in House races, is because of the built-in advantage the Republican Party has made for itself. Geography and the anti-democratic nature of the Senate give the GOP an advantage there. But the House of Representatives is supposed to be at least 
to a greater degree, elected proportionally. Geography, again, as well as the fact that House seats have not been apportioned by straight population since the House was capped at 435 members in the 1920s, give the GOP somewhat of an advantage, but their sweep of state legislatures in 2010 and a systematic gerrymandering of most states give them an additional advantage. So it's a lot harder for the Democrats to maintain a majority in Congress than it should be. Watch as Republicans on a state and federal level continue to try to disenfranchise voters and skew state legislatures as well as Congress in their favor and make an even more concerted effort to solidify minority rule. The GOP knows that even with Donald Trump getting a bump up of support from people of color this time around, the way our country's demographics are changing, they won't be able to win democratically with their platform of grievance and blame, and they're definitely not going to discard their platform. They're way too wedded to that. And a huge number of the reason why Republicans are wedded to grievance politics and blame of the other is because it works. It worked in 2016 and it worked even better in 2020. There's a lot of people saying that we shouldn't lump all Trump supporters together. I get it. People supported Donald Trump for a lot of reasons, not all of them bigotry. That's true. At the same time, we should also remember two things. First of all, while a case can be made that people voted for Donald Trump in 2016 as an anti-establishment candidate, he had four years worth of work that we could evaluate by the time 2020 rolled around. His regime had a political record that lent support to the gross and bigoted language he used to discuss people of color doing things he didn't like, protesting police brutality, vocally opposing his harmful policies, challenging him on his politicization of COVID, and in some cases, existing or trying to exist on U.S. soil. His regime had a record showing his disdain for other marginalized people such as the LGBTQ plus community and women. And he was definitely no friend of the poor. At this point, there is no excuse. Secondly, even in 2020, and especially in 2020, Donald Trump was clear about who he was. Even the apolitical and the politically unaware could not avoid hearing him talk or tweet. Yet 74 million people thought that none of the issues I discussed, which were just the tip of a huge, horrifying iceberg, were a deal breaker. Even if you hate Democrats with every fiber of your being, there were other options. There is no excuse. Does that mean we need to wage war on all Republicans or even all Trump supporters? No. But what it does mean is that Trump supporters need to be made to accept their share of the responsibility for why we're here as a country. We need to stop with these stories and the news about why people voted for Donald Trump. The reason why these why do people support Trump news stories have been written and broadcast ad nauseum is to make us feel better about living life alongside Americans who, at the very least, tolerated open bigotry and horrifying policies in order to support a petulant wannabe dictator twice. We cannot move forward 
if we are not willing to tell the truth. And part of that truth telling is being honest about who we are. The January 6th attack on the Capitol cost five people their lives as a direct result of the incident and led to at least three others later dying by suicide. This was an insurrection that was intended to keep Congress from certifying the Electoral College results that were in favor of Joe Biden's election as President of the United States. And while the vast majority of Americans, on the whole, opposed the insurrection at the Capitol, Republicans were split. According to a poll conducted by YouGov the day of the attack, 62% of American voters see the attack as a threat to democracy. But there's a split by partisanship. 93% of Democrats view it as a threat to democracy, but only 27%, just over one quarter of Republicans, see it that way. As for whether or not they approve of the storming, only 21% of registered voters approve of the insurrection, including 21% of independents and 2% of Democrats. But 45% of Republicans, a plurality, support the insurrection. Only 43% of Republicans oppose it. That's a problem. The Capitol attack was telegraphed. It should not have been a surprise. And it seems as we learn more that a number of people knew, including those in high places. The date was talked up by Donald Trump, Senators Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, and others in the month leading up to it like it was going to be a war. Remember, the American Revolution was a war. And the day of, Trump encouraged the insurrection and delayed sending help to protect the Capitol and the people who were lawfully in there. Congress, staffers, and building custodial staff. While the majority of those present in Washington, D.C. to protest the election results were peaceful, driven there by lies, but nevertheless peaceful. A contingent of that protest became violent and sought to endanger the lives of congressional representatives and senators. These were not all poor, disaffected Americans suffering from economic anxiety. The seditionists who stormed the Capitol included current and former military, police officers, members of state legislatures and other state-level officials, business owners and executives, and even clergy. Speaking of clergy, one of the aspects of the Capitol attacks is religion. Because these seditionists couldn't help themselves, many of them took pictures and live-streamed their actions, likely believing they were recording their actions for posterity in a revolution that they felt destined to win. Prayer huddles were taking place both outside and inside the Capitol. Groups of insurrectionists prayed before forcing their way into the building, and a group of them prayed before storming the floor of the House. We can talk about the fact that Donald Trump and other Republican politicians directly incited the act. We can talk about Fox News, Newsmax, and OANN, and print outlets such as Breitbart and The Daily Caller, and pumping conservatives full of misinformation and disinformation over the past four years actually longer than that in some cases. But one thing that the mainstream media is finally starting to talk about is the role of extremist Christianity in the January 6th attack. Thanks for finally joining us. We've been new.
preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. 2 Timothy 4.3 Recently, a number of news stories and opinion articles have been written about the influence of extremist Christianity, generally evangelical Protestant Christianity and traditional Catholicism, in the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. If you're going to read one, I would highly suggest the one written by Chrissy Stroop, entitled, Where Were They Radicalized? Written in Religion Dispatches. That one I recommend because Stroop is a leader in the evangelical movement and has shared and amplified the experiences of many who have left the toxic clutches of evangelicalism and are deconstructing from that tradition, and some from the Christian faith altogether. Unlike some of what's been written recently, Stroop is not a newcomer to this topic and has written about it and discussed it extensively for years now. I'll link to that article in the show notes. Her piece, and others like it, make the argument that extremist Christian institutions, including churches, ministries, and schooling, have served to radicalize conservative Christians. And that is a key part of what fueled the attack on the Capitol. Of course, such articles and opinion pieces have elicited a lot of angry feedback. The Huffington Post came out with an article written by Rebecca Klein that the curricula used in many conservative Christian schools and in homeschooling environments include various distorted narratives that, among other things, view multiculturalism, environmentalism, and postmodernism, as well as globalism, which is typically a word used to slur Jewish people, all as sources of moral decay. Blame President Obama for the worsening of race relations and accuse Black Lives Matter of being divisive and Marxist, while not informing students of their actual purpose. Klein argues that the indoctrination of children in Christian education over the past several decades, using such distorted materials, helped lead us to the events at the Capitol. That article is pretty good as well, and I will link to it in the show notes. The Christian Post then wrote a screed in response, and I call it a screed because the authors did not address the points made by Klein in the Huffington Post article, or the fact that she was pulling from the texts themselves. They instead leaned into the conservative Christian victimhood narrative while decrying leftists and progressives, and accused the Huffington Post of slander. Their words, not mine. Yes, they used the wrong word. And the correct word, libel, does not apply if the words are true. I've discussed on the podcast in the past about how I became an evangelical Christian in college. I go into more detail in other episodes, especially in episode 53, Evangelical Gaslighting. So if you'd like to hear the entire story of how I became evangelical, definitely check that out. But here's the Notes version for context. In my first year at The Ohio State University, coming from Detroit, Michigan, I didn't know anyone. I had moved away from home, and as an introvert who had not been popular in high school, I wanted a do-over. 
I was approached by street preachers who I would later find out were from World Harvest Church, a local charismatic megachurch led by televangelist Rod Parsley. I soon made friends who were also Christian and got involved in campus ministry, first joining Chi Alpha, a group associated with the Assemblies of God. Then later on in the same school year, I ended up moving on to InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, a global campus ministry group, which had a chapter at Ohio State. I was a part of that for all four years of undergrad. I also attended World Harvest for close to two years before attending a small independent church plant just blocks from campus. But what I haven't talked about, at least on this podcast, is a personal story that is related to this time in my life. It's not something I'm proud of. The reason I share it here is because it's an illustration of how the culture of conservative Christianity, in this case evangelicalism, can go very, very wrong. So to give a little bit of additional background, I started my evangelical Christian journey attending Chi Alpha meetings and attending Walt Harvest Church. Both environments were very charismatic, meaning a strong belief in spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, an active spirit realm with angels and demons, the belief that God can audibly speak to us, stuff like that. And I was truly all in. At the time, I was still dating the same guy I dated in high school, though that relationship was not exactly healthy. Well, during a Chi Alpha retreat, I felt like God was telling me to break up with him. I wasn't happy in the relationship at that point, but at the time, I struggled with my self-worth and I feared being alone. But if I wasn't listening to God, I thought, who was I going to listen to? So after the retreat, I ended the relationship. Later that year, I met a guy we'll call Brock through one of my friends. At the time, Brock was part of InterVarsity and lived in another dorm that was right around the corner from mine. And I pretty much instantly had a crush on him. Now, I started going to InterVarsity instead of Chi Alpha. I switched over for a number of reasons. I thought at the time it would be a better fit. While I didn't start going to IV for Brock, it was nice to see him there. He and I became friends. Well, I had feelings for him, but he didn't have feelings for me. Okay, that's fine. Sucks, but rejection happens. Part of life. But weeks after, I was on the campus bus on a Saturday night, and in a quiet moment, felt like I heard God telling me, be patient. Brock is the one. I thought to myself, okay, that's just something that I subconsciously wanted to happen. Can't hear audibly from God twice. But then, the next day, I was taking a church membership class before Sunday service with my close friends. The minister teaching the class began telling a story about God telling her who her husband was. The man who she felt would be her husband didn't get this memo, but she had kept believing that God would bring them together. And ultimately, they did end up together and getting married. The timing was too perfect. Boom! Confirmation. So I stayed friends with Brock, 
deep inside, I felt that one day he would come around and God's word to me would come to pass. I had other friends whose stories of becoming coupled and married were similar. And at the time, everything I did outside of classes and work was related to evangelicalism. Ivy Bible study, Ivy large group, which was sort of like weekday service, and then church on Sunday, then the occasional retreat, outreach, urban missions. It was full immersion. Almost my entire friend group at this point were evangelical Christian. I had initially planned to attend law school after graduation to become an attorney practicing civil rights law. But people in my Christian bubble convinced me that becoming a lawyer would be sinful. So I should pursue something else. And I eventually landed on becoming a professor. I was deeply worried that my dad, who was exploring Islam at the time, was going to hell. And faith. At the time, faith meant the acceptance of a sort of shadow realm, an alternative universe parallel to our own, where Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God's angels would do battle with Satan and the demons on our behalf as believers in order to manifest blessings in our lives. And if God promised something, he would move heaven and earth for it to happen. We were discouraged from trusting our current reality. We couldn't trust what we saw and experienced. We just had to believe in Christ and all of this otherworldly theology that went along with him and not allow ourselves to have any doubts. Be patient and everything will come to pass on God's timing. To doubt or to question was to be unbelieving and we can't have that. The go-to verse during that time was Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. When it came to what I believed was God's promise regarding Brock, faith was everything. If I let go of this prophecy as just wishful thinking from a deluded 18-year-old who was figuring life out, that meant I didn't have enough faith and I didn't trust God. I took risks, then in retrospect were stupid. Other variety of getting rides from strangers a couple times, driving through snowstorms, standing up for my friends and family in potentially dangerous situations. That I would do all over again, but you get the idea. But I figured I would be fine because God would protect me. And besides, I couldn't die if I'm not with Brock yet, right? And the most embarrassing thing I did was that I factored the prophecy into my decision to attend University of Cincinnati. Brock had moved down here after he graduated from Ohio State, which was a year before I did. And the fact that the department had professors whose expertise included religion and US politics, which is what I wanted to study, it seemed like God was fitting everything into place. Welp, it didn't work out that way. When I first moved to Cincinnati, I hated it. I was adjusting, or not really, to life in a city that is not always the most welcoming to those who aren't from here. And this was without the immersive evangelical bubble of undergrad. I'd found a church and a Bible study, but I was also around more non-Christians, as well as Christians who lived and believed differently than I did. In addition, this was around the time I found out health-related news that affected me deeply. And this was around the time my dad's health was beginning to decline. 
things were not great. At this point, I began to question a lot more, not just about the prophecy, but about other aspects of my life. From as far back as I can remember, a part of me has been a very analytical and rational person. I had suppressed that quite a bit in my undergrad, but at this point, I was using that part of myself more in my graduate studies and in my interactions with others who believed differently from myself. Does the theology I've been taught make any sense at all? And what if my understanding of what it means to be a Christian and my understanding of God and his effect on our lives is completely wrong? Obviously, things weren't working out with that prophecy either. Brock never magically developed feelings for me, but that wasn't the only issue. There was a period of time where we were hanging out a lot, and I began to realize that while Brock had some good qualities, we were not compatible as people. And even if we did become romantically involved, it would never work out. And this wasn't a slight against Brock. It was just reality. But while initially the questionable theology and the misplaced faith got me thinking this prophecy would happen, it continued after a certain point due to the sunk cost fallacy. I had put seven whole years into this based on a belief that God has spoken to me about a future with Brock. For seven years, I was all in. No dating, no relationships, jumped on the purity train. Hell, I even moved to a whole nother city for this. If I acknowledged that maybe I was wrong and I was deluded and I was being pathetic and all these years were a waste, that would be embarrassing. Everyone will think I'm a joke, a laughingstock, can't show my face anywhere. And then what? My dad died in October of 2006, the day before Halloween. That was a turning point in a lot of ways, most of which would be another episode in and of itself. But relevant to this story, one of the things that really hit me was that my dad, who I was extremely close to, would never be able to walk me down the aisle. I had wanted him to be there, but now it would never happen. He always wanted me to meet a nice guy and see me get married and know I'd be okay. Yes, it's a traditional, patriarchal concept, to be sure, but that was who he was, and I was daddy's little girl. In grief, I felt that because I had been all in on this prophecy that was illogical, made no sense, and was not tethered to reality... I cheated my dad out of that moment. And at that point, I was over pausing my life for anything else. So it was at that point, I told Brock I needed to end the friendship. And at that point, I finally let go of the prophecy. It was the best decision I ever made. Making that decision, as well as deconstruction from evangelicalism more generally, gave me my life back. I did not blame Brock. You like who you like, everyone has that agency, and no one owes you a date or relationship. To make a long story short, time, support, and therapy helped a great deal. I learned to love where I live, which is a lot easier to do when your thoughts of a city aren't clouded by disappointment and sadness. I learned to value my existing friendships more and gain more confidence in myself. And that helped me to become a whole and healthier person, 
And now I'm married to the love of my life, Chuckles. We'll be married for 10 years as of this August. If these more difficult parts of my life hadn't happened, I may not have met him. And just for that, I would do it all over again. My faith is ever evolving. For ex-evangelicals, people who have left evangelical Christianity, there's deconstruction and there's reconstruction. At this point in my life, it's mainly reconstruction, but there's always things to deconstruct and wrestle with. Not everyone who leaves evangelicalism remains Christian. There are different landing spots, and even then, those are subject to change, and that's okay. For me, I've remained Christian, but that faith looks a lot different and a lot more grounded in reality than the faith I had at 18, and subject to change. When I think about the escalation and persistence of Christian extremism, the Brock story comes to mind for me for a couple of reasons. On a high level, it illustrates in a real way how religious radicalization happens. Whether we're talking about Christianity or Islam or some other faith, extremist religion tends to prey on people who are struggling, oftentimes with direction, self-worth, or other issues, and gives them something. You get a community of other people who are willing to teach you, to help you grow in your faith. You get compatriots who are learning along with you as well. You get things, you get tasks to fill up your time, a holy book or supplemental materials to read or listen to and share your insights with others who can guide you on the correct insights. You might engage in retreats with your group or you go out and recruit other people so others can be a part of your community. You become immersed. It becomes your whole life. Over time, you're taught a different way of seeing the world, a way that might be a bit distorted from what you've always known. It's not readily apparent to outsiders, but it's rock-solid reality to you, the leaders you look up to, and your community as a whole. You may be called to change your plans for your faith, make decisions that don't make a lot of sense. That could be something like, waiting on a particular person for years because you think God told you they were the one, or going to some remote island off the coast of India to preach to some isolated tribal community, or alienating your family and friends because they don't believe it's your job to save the world from a cabal of powerful pedophiles who meet in the non-existent basement of a random pizza joint, or training in a desert to set off a suicide bomb somewhere around the world or shooting up a mall because you're afraid of white replacement, or storming the nation's capital because the amoral president you believe is the chosen one failed to get reelected. It's a lot like a cult. The United States is supposed to be a secular country in the sense that we live in a pluralist society with people who hold a number of different faiths and life philosophies and a diversity of practices. We also have a constitution that was written without mention of a specific religion, that enshrines the right to free exercise of religion and the protection from government establishment of religion. Yet, Christianity is so embedded in mainstream culture that it's hard for many of us to grasp that Christian extremism, like other types of religious and ideological extremism, is such a clear and present danger to our democracy. 
I wonder if five or 10 years ago, some of the terrorists who stormed the Capitol building on January 6th would have dreamed of doing such a thing. I'm not talking about the ones who organized it or who were longtime members of white supremacist and right-wing extremist groups. I'm talking about the ones who were living fairly normal lives just a few years ago. They were going to church every Sunday, going to Bible study or midday service during the week. They or their children attending evangelical Christian or traditionalist Catholic schools, or maybe even homeschooled. Perhaps from the pulpit, they were being taught that abortion is the only issue that matters, and that the world, everyone outside of their small slice of Christianity, was full of raging sin, and they were all going to burn in a lake of fire, and that Islam is growing because they're having more babies, so we need to get back to traditional values. Men and women are equal but different, and we need to celebrate motherhood. And movements like Black Lives Matter are worldly and Marxist, and while we sympathize with their feelings of perceived injustice, what will help more is an emphasis on education. Get black and brown kids back in the classroom, corona be damned, and teach those people about fatherhood and marriage and having nuclear families. Or maybe their teachers taught them that slavery was necessary, that slavers didn't know any better, and that most slaves were happy in their lot. Or that the Civil War was fought over states' rights or some issue other than slavery. Perhaps they learned that God created the world in a literal six days, that the earth is literally 6,000 years old, and that fossils dated to millions of years ago were planted by the devil to trick humanity in science class. And in Bible study, they may have learned that multiculturalism, environmentalism, and feminism are the enemies of a moral and good society, that society is being ruined by wokeism, a 2020s way of saying political correctness, and that the country is being run by globalist cabals. In other words, the Jews. And this worldwide evil must be stopped by prayer and by fighting back. Americans living unassuming lives, yet being immersed by the skewed view of the world. Is it any wonder that eventually some of their lives took a left turn? Is it that much of a stretch from the theology and worldview taught by immersion in conservative Christianity to the world of QAnon? Yes, for many on the outside looking in, It's wild, it's whacked. But when you're already primed to believe in an alternate reality and your day-to-day reality isn't real, the foundation has been laid to go further and further down the rabbit hole of extremism. I say this not to make us feel bad for any of the insurrectionists. I still maintain that they made very poor choices, to say the least, and should be held to account like any other extremists who choose the path of control and violence. But like Islamic extremists, who also may have lived fairly normal lives at one point before they were indoctrinated, these extremists, right-wing extremists, Christian extremists, were radicalized. That is a reality we need to look at objectively and take very seriously. The other aspect that the Brock story calls back to is that extremist religion, cults, and the like tend towards circular reasoning that does not require that any of the promises or predictions made actually come to pass. 
What keeps people hooked in extremist movements can be thought of as a rabbit on a racetrack. Dogs are chasing the automatic rabbit, never catching it, but the lure of the rabbit, the promise of that tasty little creature, keeps them salivating, keeps them going around and around and around the track, and they never get there. But there's always the next race. The Brock prophecy required my patience, reinforced by others within my Christian circle. Sure, I'm not with him now, but give it time. A year goes by, then two, then three. He graduates and leaves from Columbus. But then there's the opportunity for another chance in another place. And then more time goes by and nothing changes. But keep the faith because there's always tomorrow. Always tomorrow, never today. Most brands of extremism make promises for the future. Promises all too often without fulfillment. According to the prosperity gospel, if you give the church a substantial donation as a sign of your faith, you will receive your financial blessing. In purity culture, if you live out your faith by refraining from having sex or even thinking about sex, you'll meet your soulmate and you'll live happily ever after. If you vote for the people we tell you to vote for or the party we tell you to vote for, America will be reshaped into a white conservative Christian image that you've always longed for. And you will be able to say everything you wanted to say and treat people however you wanted to treat them without any criticism or consequence. Yet in the church, there are a lot of poor people, a lot of single people who don't want to remain single, and a lot of bigots who have lost their jobs and their kids don't talk to them anymore. And yet they keep on giving, keep on abstaining, and keep voting for the same party, even when an amoral, lying con man is on the ticket. And it's not that much of a leap from that, too. If you keep supporting Donald Trump, he will usher in a new age where conservative Christians are in power, and he will turn the clock back on the diversifying of the United States. If you have enough faith and you don't live in fear, you don't need to wear a mask, and you don't need to worry about a virus that's just like the flu. If you attend Trump's rallies and pack together like sardines, you'll show the world how much he is supported and you'll get him elected for a second term. Oh, the news just announced Joe Biden won. The media said what? <laughs> the media said Joe Biden's president. Ha 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 Well, the swing states won't certify. The election will go to Trump. They certified? He'll sue and the election will be his. 60 losing lawsuits and a failed Supreme Court effort? December 14th, we'll have competing slates of electors and the swing states will vote for Trump. Oh, those weren't accepted? January 6th, Congress won't certify the electoral votes from swing states? Oh, and we will be there and we will pray hard and we will fight to make sure they don't. Oh, they did anyway? January 20th, the military will take over. The Chinese army will flood in from across the Canadian border and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won't be able to take the oath. Oh, Joe Biden is now president and Kamala Harris is now vice president. What? Trump says he will be back in some form. There's always tomorrow. Always tomorrow, never today. I'm not a cult deprogramming expert, so I'm not qualified to suggest what specifically can be done 
to de-radicalize Americans who are deep into extremist Christianity, QAnon, white supremacy, or any of the cult-like beliefs that have led to right-wing violence and terrorism in the United States. Obviously, preventing this indoctrination is ideal, which is tough to be fair. As a country, we want to respect freedom of religion, even religion that we might not be comfortable with or we might not agree with. But we also need to treat domestic terror, including terror coming from right-wing Christian extremism, like we treat Islamic terrorism and terrorism from any other source. But for those who are already indoctrinated, there does need to be some kind of off-ramp. I may not know what that off-ramp looks like specifically, but I do know this. That off-ramp must be paved with the truth. The truth sets us free. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Prime, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirrerpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. If you subscribe for free, you'll be able to access new episodes as soon as they're released. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give it five stars and leave a review. And I love to tweet. So follow me on Twitter at PotstirrerCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.